Good morning, good morning. Uh, it is so good to be with you on this beautiful, rainy June day. Um, uh, my name is Bradley Coleman. I uh, am one of the leaders here at Midtown Church. We've been, my, my wife and I have been here since the very beginning. And so it's been super cool to see like all the, the things that God has done through Midtown and what he continues to do. Um, and it's just been really great to be part of it. Um, if you don't know, I'm an educator. I work as a middle school counselor, and so <laughs> all the other educators will probably agree that June is the best month, because uh, I literally just do whatever I want. I get to sleep in every day, you know, play a lot of Zelda. It's awesome. It's really good stuff. But I do feel bad for my wife, Danny. She still has to get up really early while I'm still catching Z's. She's you know, getting ready, going to work, working really long hours, but I get over it. So anyways, a couple months ago, uh, Danny and I, we were making dinner together, and one thing we like to do when we're making dinner is to have something playing on the TV. It could be Spotify, something on Netflix, and while we were looking through Netflix, we came across a show that we used to watch together as kids, and uh, this prompted a, an intense debate. The debate was, what is the best Cartoon Network exclusive show. So the show had to start out on Cartoon Network. It can't be one that comes on later on. So all my Pokemon fans, Dragon Ball Z fans, sorry. Uh, for me, my favorite of all time is definitely Dexter's Laboratory. Anybody else like Dexter's Laboratory? Omelette du fromage. You remember that episode? Yeah. Uh, Danny's favorite show was Powerpuff Girls, which would be a really close second. I do love Powerpuff Girls. Um, and that was just so happened to be the show that we were, uh, we put on the TV while we, you know, cutting our vegetables, making our dinner. And while we were preparing dinner, they said a joke on the show that if you watched as a kid, it would just completely go over your head. Like, you're like, like, I, like literally, me and Danny froze and stared at each other. Like, they really just say that? They really just said that? And it's funny, you know, like, whenever you're a kid, you don't really understand that joke. Like, it just, like, didn't remember it at all. Uh, we do this with a lot of things uh, whenever we think about whenever we were children. Uh, once we go back to watch that same thing, it may not be the, the way we remember it. Or maybe it's like like a hometown. Going back to hometown, it's different than why you remember it uh, as a kid. You know, we often remember things vividly as children, but not always accurately. <laughs> and I believe that the book of Jonah could actually suffer from this. I don't think it'd be a stretch uh, for me to say that most of our experience with the book of Jonah has been through the telling of a talking cucumber or a zucchini. Uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he has a sermon series on Jonah, and he coins this as the VeggieTales factor. Because, uh, you know, we remember a lot, of, or you remember like the main thing about the book of Jonah, really think. If I asked you guys, what do you remember the most about Jonah? I feel like at least 90% of us would mention a giant fish. Don't call it a whale. I learned that at Bible college. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> but the fish is only mentioned a couple times in the entire story. And just to, just to put it into perspective, and you can do this whenever you go home. If you look on Amazon, you put in Jonah children's story, every single cover has a gigantic fish on it with this small little man. So, like, again, the fish isn't really the main point of the book at all. Um, so today we're going to go through these four chapters. Uh, they're very short, but they pack a huge message. 
while making our, our main focus on the actual pinnacle of Jonah, the actual main point of Jonah is chapter 4. So let's dive in. You get it? <laughs> dive? Fish? Okay. Uh, before we do, though, I kind of want to explain some of the context of the story. There is absolutely no other book in the Bible like Jonah, especially when it comes to the minor prophets. It's very fascinating. It starts off just like the other minor prophets do. Uh, it says, a word of the Lord came to Jonah. And this is how most of the minor prophets start. Uh, but as we read it, it's actually about the prophet. There's nothing else like this. And there's also a lot of comedic elements uh, in this, this story. It's a really funny story. The Bible can have comedy. Uh, we just don't always look for it. Uh, and it's also important to know some of the background of the story. Because if you were to read this story from your 21st century perspective, uh, you may not pick up on some of the context here. But if you were around whenever it was first told, you'd pick up on a lot more because you're listening into it from their perspective. And this is just important to do whenever you read scripture as a whole. You want to know who the author is and who the author is writing to and how it may be impactful to them. Uh, speaking of author, I'll ask you the same question that Corbin asked a few weeks ago whenever he spoke on Amos. Who do you suppose wrote the book of Jonah? Trick question. We have no idea. Uh, Jonah is one of two books uh, in the Minor Prophets that we do not know who the author is, the other being Malachi. And when it comes to Jonah, uh, theologians have two schools of thought. Some believe that Jonah is a historical fact and that everything in this story happened to a man or prophet named Jonah. And the, uh, uh, the other side, or the second school of thought, uh, is that the author is doing something very creative here. And he's actually telling a parable using real people. Kind of like what Jesus would do whenever he was telling a parable using real people to make a point. And just to be clear, Jonah was a real person. He was a real person and a prophet. And I just want to reiterate our points that we're going through with the minor prophets. A prophet uh, isn't a fortune teller. A, a prophet is simply a messenger of the Lord um, that is uh, sent by God to call the people of God back to covenantal faithfulness. Second Kings mentions Jonah uh, and speaks about how he, he like prophesies that Israel is going to expand its borders. Uh, that is the prophecy during one of Israel's evil king's reign, which is super ironic because in this book, you're going to see God commissions Jonah to go into a foreign country to expand God's borders. Uh, and even Jesus mentions Jonah. He talks about him being in the belly of this fish for three days in comparison to Jesus being in the tomb for three days. And whether you believe that this story is historical fact or creative, uh, creative satire, it doesn't really matter. Uh, what matters is what is God trying to tell us through this story? Because we are going to get to see just how ridiculous Jonah's behavior is in this book. And you may even think, wow, he is ridiculous, over the top. But then you, you take a step back and you really think about it, really meditate. We act like that on a daily basis, too. Uh, if we really sit down and think about times how we behave to the people around us. So let's go ahead and read Jonah 1, 
verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Happy Father's Day to Amittai. Uh, Let's stop right there, though. If you're listening to this story in the ancient world, uh, and you heard this, you may may chuckle. And and here's why. Names in the Bible have significant meaning. Um, uh, When we actually had a leadership meeting earlier this year, and for some reason, I don't, I don't even know how it came up, uh, we started talking about what our names meant. My name, Brad, means broad meadow, <laughs> which is so lame. <laughs> uh, Jonah means dove. It's kind of like the symbol of like blamelessness, purity. And Amittai means faithfulness. So the book starts off with, Now a word of the Lord came to dove. Son of faithfulness, which is hilarious because you're about to discover that Jonah is literally the most faithless person in this entire story. Um, But carrying on, verse 2 says, uh, God's commissioning Jonah here, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, And I just kind of want to put into perspective just how brutal the Assyrian Empire was. One of their practices would be to, uh, whenever they conquer a city, they would take the leaders of the city, take them in front of all the townspeople, and begin to skin them alive in front of everybody, almost to make the, the townsfolk submit to their authority before deporting these people back to an Assyrian city. Another thing they would do is before they surround, uh, or before they conquer a city, they would surround the city, take these large wooden spikes, impale their enemies or the city they're about to conquer, put it around the city they're about to conquer. That way, if you're inside the city, you would look out and you would see your people impaled on these wooden spikes. It's almost like the physical trauma wasn't enough. They would also use psychological tactics. And not to mention, which I think is the most important thing to realize, the Assyrian Empire, again, which Nineveh is the capital of, was responsible for wiping out 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Gone. And God says to Jonah, son of faithfulness, hey, I know that you're a Hebrew. I know that uh, these people have did really bad things, committed genocide against your people. Uh, but hey, I, I want you to go to this brutal city, and I want you to tell them that everything they're doing is wrong, and that they are evil. Go on and do that for me, Jonah. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, so how does our son of faithfulness respond? It says, he flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. This is a funny scene. I want to show you a map real quick. We can pull it up. All right, so here's the Mediterranean Sea. Point A, or the, the right side of the Mediterranean Sea, is where he's at right now. He's in Joppa. Uh, point B, which is right next to point A, not too far away, is Nineveh. He is booking it, fleeing for his life to point C, which is southern Spain. Uh, and just to reiterate, this is the last known uh, city in the Western world. He, there is no city beyond Tarshish, okay? So he is like fleeing for his life, trying to get as far away from Nineveh as possible. It's almost like God saying to you, hey, I want you to go to St. Louis, but instead you, you go to Seattle. Like you just like, okay, I'm going to go the opposite way. Um, but and after, you, after hearing about how brutal the Assyrian people were, do you blame them? 
I mean, I don't blame him. I'd probably be fleeing too. Uh, and as a result of Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord, while he is on this ship uh, heading towards Tarshish, the Lord hurls this mighty tempest at the boat. Uh, and it's so strong that the, the ship almost breaks apart. And the, the sailors, as you can imagine, they're all freaking out because of this crazy storm. They all, if you, if you get a chance, you should read this, this part of the story. They all start, like, start crying out and praying to their own gods. They're all pagan sailors, so they have their own individual gods. They're really just hoping that one of them will stick, like one of them will help. Uh, and they're, they're freaking out. As you can see, there's like this crazy storm happening. Uh, and I just want to point out how bizarre this book is, all right? Whereas the other minor prophet books... They're all like telling what God has told them to say or praying a prayer. The first person to pray in this story were a bunch of pagan sailors, not even Jonah. Where is our son of faithfulness during this? Well, he is at the bottom of the boat, fast asleep during this crazy storm. And the captain goes down from the top of the ship. He goes to, the, to the, uh, where Jonah's at, and he's like, what do you mean, you sleeper? Have you ever called someone a sleeper? That's kind of hilarious. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. You can sense the urgency in the captain's tone here. I mean, he's freaking out. And you can also see the urgency in the sailors in the story as they all start casting lots, which is like rolling dice. They're rolling dice trying to figure out who brought this evil upon them. And after they're rolling the dice the, the, or casting lots, the lots fell on Jonah, to which they ask him, like, they, they start playing, like, 20 questions with him. They say, what is your occupation? Where are you from? What people are you from? To which Jonah says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Do you really, for one second, believe that, that Jonah truly respected or feared the Lord here? I mean, he, he says that he serves the Lord that created the sea and the dry land, yet he's trying to escape God through a boat. Like, doesn't make sense. And this answer freaks out the sailor, sailors, and they grant Jonah's request to be thrown into the sea because the wind becomes worse. And so he's thrown into the sea. All of these sailors end up following Yahweh. They all start uh, believing the one true God, and they even make sacrifices to him. So Jonah somehow led all these sailors to the Lord. It's amazing. Um, with Jonah in the sea, this is that all too familiar part of the story where he's swallowed by this big fish for three days and three nights, which leads us to chapter two. We're not going to spend too much time in this chapter, um, but this is the very first time in the entire book we get to see Jonah pray. It's a beautiful prayer that I would suggest that you read uh, when you get a chance. But the prayer ends in, uh, with verse 9 saying, But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And this will be important soon. As a result of this beautiful prayer, the Lord commands the fish to vomit Jonah out onto dry land. So can you imagine, like, it's like beach day for you, and you're just walking, you see a fish just puke him out. Um, so once he's out of this fish, uh, the Lord speaks to him again. He says, hey, I want you to go back to where I told you to go. I want you to go to Nineveh and call out their evil. Now, he, it says that, that Nineveh it was a three-day's journey 
uh, in, the, in Scripture. It, there's no ancient world like city that big, but it's still an extremely large city. Whenever he goes to Nineveh, he's about to have one of the most like, amazing miracles ever. He's about to preach a sermon to these Ninevites. Um, uh, like 120,000 people in this city. It's going to be profound. It's going to be convicting. It's going to change these people's lives forever. And here is the sermon. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's the sermon. He doesn't mention the Lord one time. <laughs> he doesn't mention what evil they have done. He doesn't even tell them what they need to do to not be overthrown. It's almost like he did just enough to say, hey, I told you, or I, I did what you told me to do, Lord. And what's actually amazing about this sermon is he doesn't lie. God does indeed overthrow Nineveh, just not physically. He overthrows the entire city's heart as they all start to follow the Lord. They fast. They even put on sackcloth, which is almost like taking off your like fancy clothes or your regular clothes and putting on really meek, humbling clothes like a burlap sack. Even the greatest of them do this, to which translates to the next part of the story, where the king of Nineveh even removes his robe and puts on a sackcloth and it issues a bizarre proclamation. He says, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast... Herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from evil, uh, from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So, not only does the king of Nineveh declare a fast for all the people in the city, but he also uh, decrees a fast for all the animals in the city. Uh, <laughs> he even makes all the animals wear sackcloth. So, you imagine you're, like, going out to the farmlands of Kansas and Missouri, and you're just, like, you see a bunch of cows, and they're all wearing burlap sacks. That'd be kind of hilarious. Uh, you'd have a bunch of foodies going out ordering barbecue around here. Instead of asking if the chickens were cage-free, you'd ask, was the cow burlap sacked? Um, it is just an over-the-top response to following God. But, you know, I, I can relate to the king here. I remember whenever I first became a Christian, whenever I was 19, I was kind of over-the-top, too, with how I believed. So this part of the story is super endearing to me. And what is God's response to all of this? It says, when God saw uh, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened God relents. He doesn't send calamity to this great city of Nineveh. Mission accomplished for Jonah. Uh, if we end this book right now, this would be a happy ending, right? Um, yeah, Jonah messes up in the beginning, doesn't go to Nineveh right away. Uh, uh, he kind of gives this half-hearted sermon, but it's okay. They all became uh, followers of Yahweh. Happy ending. But let's spend the rest of our time in chapter 4. Chapter 4 has the big reveal. You may even experience what Danny and I experienced watching the Powerpuff Girls, like looking at each other like, what? That's actually in the scripture? We find out the truth as to why he didn't want to come to Nineveh. We assume it's because of how fearful he is for his life. 
but it's actually just because he didn't care about theirs. The first verse says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The prophet of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord becomes livid. The same prophet that while in the belly of the fish says that salvation comes from the Lord becomes angry whenever that in fact is true. And you would think that Jonah would be feeling pretty good right now, right? Literally everyone in the story that he comes in contact with becomes followers of God. The pagan sailors, the common folk of Nineveh, and even to the royalty. But Jonah's angry. Again, we realize that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh not because he was scared of the Ninevites. No, he didn't want to go because he hated the Ninevites. He knew that God would save them. That's why he is mad. To which brings us up to a challenging thought to us, us as believers, because we may think Jonah's being ridiculous here. We even may uh, make fun of him. But if you really think about it, we act like Jonah every day. And to ask the question, what do we do when we realize that God loves our enemies? We know he does. We say he does. We don't always behave like he does. What do we do when we realize that God loves those who disagree with us, say, politically? What do we do when we realize that God loves those who disagree with us spiritually? And what do we do when God loves those that have inflicted pain on us in the past or to the people that we love? Jonah can check every one of these boxes in this question. The Ninevites didn't, or they didn't agree with him politically. And they didn't agree with him spiritually until like two seconds ago. And the empire that they were part of, I mean, guys, these were the people that committed genocide against his people. So he can definitely uh, relate to point three about hurting his people, hurting him. And I feel like with that last bit of information, knowing that they did this, you can really empathize with how Jonah's reacting here. But this is what the scandal of grace looks like. God's grace and compassion is for all, even those that we would make call foe. You and I both have to come to realization and into terms that our hatred for others will always be outmatched by God's love for that same person. And you see that with, with, with Jesus. Jesus also, in his, his um, ministry, is constantly flipping out what an enemy is and God's love for your enemy. Please understand, it's not my intention or desire to minimize any past trauma that you've been in. I can empathize with that. I am simply saying that harboring hatred and anger towards those that have inflicted pain to you only amplifies that trauma. And we get a, a glimpse of it here of a very human response to these difficult questions as Jonah begins to lament uh, towards God. He says in verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, just take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah's saying, I knew you were all these positive things. But these positive attributes, they have significant meaning. You see, Jonah is quoting God here. He is quoting God from Exodus 34, 6. This is like their version, like the Old Testament's version of uh, John 3, 16. 
It says, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. You see, the Old Testament covenant was an agreement between God and Israel. Exodus 34, 6 uh, was God's response to the Hebrew people as they made this golden calf and started worshiping false idols. But God still in his, uh, he still relents from his anger and renews the covenant. He doesn't leave his people in their brokenness. And they were like, why would you do this, God? And this is his response. He is compassionate. He is a gracious God. He is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. You may also be reminded of Cassie's sermon on Joel. Joel uh, 2.13 uses these same words to describe God, but the tone is much different here. It's like Joel's writing is a promise of God, whereas Jonah's response is more of an accusation. But Jonah despises the positive attributes of God here and says, this is why I didn't want to be faithful. I knew you were too loving to my enemies. You see, I would argue that although Jonah would consider the Ninevites in the story uh, his enemy in his book, but Jonah's actual enemy is Jonah. Charles Spurgeon once said, Beware of no man more than yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. Jonah's hatred blinded him at first where he didn't want to be part of what God had for him. And when he actually follows through, his anger is only amplified at the mere thought that God is quick to save and abounding in love, even towards those he would call foe. Our hatred can consume us and make us the villains in our own story. Our focus is ourselves when we hate our neighbor, and we completely lose focus on, what, on God, and we focus on what we hate rather than what God loves I think we can relate to not having a pleasant interaction with someone, perhaps in, when we're driving. Um, I mean, Kansas City roads are rough, guys. Or maybe an annoying coworker, perhaps an angry customer. We may be really short with them after multiple interactions, completely neglecting that this is an opportunity that God may be presenting to us to show them the kingdom of God through our behaviors towards them. We all have hard days where the last thing we want to do is display God's grace after being yelled at one too many times. I get that. But God's response to Jonah is just this calm question. He says, do you do well to be angry? I think this is a question we ought to ask ourselves whenever we become upset. Notice the question is, should you be angry? But rather, is your anger helping Jonah? We often don't ask ourselves that because we know the answer. But instead of answering God's question, Jonah simply ignores God and goes out of the city. Not like Jonah to ignore God, right? And he makes a booth for himself outside the city where he waits because he wants to see if something will happen to the city still. It's almost like he's hoping that something tragic will happen. It makes you wonder if his sermon in Nineveh wasn't an actual sermon, but more like wishful thinking. And God does something really clever here. You see, when, when he first asks uh, Jonah, does it do you well to be angry? Jonah ignores it. He just completely just goes about his day, goes outside the city, and uh, watches over the city. So what God does is he appoints this plant to grow up over Jonah. And it says that Jonah is exceedingly glad. This is the first time in the text that we see Jonah happy, by the way. It's only whenever a plant is right next to him, which all my green thumbs in the room can relate. But then God appoints a worm that attacks the plant, and it withers. 
God is doing something really interesting here. You see, Jonah didn't really care about the Ninevites. He hated them. But he did love that plant. So God used this worm to uh, attack the plant to invoke an emotional response from Jonah. So whenever the plant dies, God uses this as an opportunity to teach his prophet. And this part of chapter 4, in my opinion, is the most beautiful part of Jonah as a whole. Because God is not finished with Jonah here. I mean, God got all, all of what he wanted already. All the Ninevites, they all follow him now, right? Even the pagan sailors follow him. But he still has one more person to reach, and that's Jonah. And you can easily make a, a case from a human perspective that the Lord should be finished with Jonah like he messes up just one too many times. He went to the opposite side of the known world, away from God's presence. He gives his half-hearted sermon in Nineveh. Then he becomes really angry whenever uh, they receive his messenger, even as a messenger of the Lord. But God isn't like us. The Lord is, in fact, gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. The very things that Jonah accuses God of being are the very things that he gets to experience from God here. He says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry about this plant? Which Jonah says, yeah, angry enough to die. It's like, God's being so patient here because Jonah can't be reasoned with. You know, we can become like Jonah uh, when we ask God a question and we just choose to ignore it. And whenever our conscience gets pressed, our avoidance becomes anger, and then our anger becomes selfishness. Jonah is saying, it is right for me to be angry, God. But God, in his patience, responds. He says, you pity the plant, Jonah, and you did not labor for it. You didn't make it grow. It's only been here for a night, and it perished in one night. Shouldn't I also pity this great city, which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and much cattle? This book ends with the word cows, by the way. Um, now, God isn't calling the Ninevites stupid here. He's simply saying, Jonah, they didn't know any better. God is saying to Jonah, you had nothing to do with this plant, Jonah, but I did. And the same goes for the people of Nineveh. Shouldn't I also pity these people, Jonah? I have toiled tirelessly trying to reach these people who were made in my image. Shouldn't I pity them too? They may have done a lot of evil things, Jonah, but that's why I sent you to begin with, to put a stop to it and to renew their paths. And we never get to see Jonah's response here. That's how the, the book ends, with just that question of God asking that question. We never see Jonah's response. And you may think to yourself, that's kind of a bummer. I'd like to see how he responds. I'm sure it wouldn't be dramatic at all. Um, but his response doesn't matter to this question. What matters is your response to this question, my response to this question. How would you answer this about someone that you would maybe call enemy or someone that maybe you aren't so nice to, maybe someone who has inflicted true pain to you? This is the point of this story. And if we take a step back and really meditate, I believe that we can think of an interaction that we have had with someone where we probably could have approached it a little bit differently. It could be something as small as being short with a coworker, 
or as big as someone that has truly inflicted great pain and trauma to us. Again, I'm not trying to minimize any trauma that you've been through. I can recognize that there is great pain in this room. But I believe that God is asking us this question. Shouldn't he too pity those that you and I call an enemy? This just may be an opportunity for us to show the grace and forgiveness that God has given us to that same person. This may be an opportunity for us to experience grace, God's grace again as we get to be the ones that display it. If I could have the worship team come up. I was recently reading a life account of a Rwandan man. His name is John Claude. It was 1994 whenever the Rwandan genocide took place. It's less than 30 years ago. Isn't it crazy to think that genocide took place less than 30 years ago? See, John was part of the Tutsi people. They were the target of the genocidal killings resulted from anywhere from half a million to 600,000 deaths. And the group responsible were the Hutus people. Those were the neighbors of the Tutsi people. John's home was invaded by 12 Hutus men, and he saw his father dismembered in front of him and murdered. His sister was murdered, as well as his aunt and uncle, because they all lived together. Thankfully, his mother survived the attack, but now lives, as you can imagine, with an overwhelmingly amount of trauma, both physical and mental. John saw all of this while hiding behind his fence. He was 11 years old. And as you can imagine, it was a really long road to forgiveness, but he actually did forgive those who did murder his family. Ten years later, he joined the, uh, an organization called Compassion. It's a program dedicated to helping children escape poverty in Rwanda. During this time, he sponsored a child who was fatherless. And the reason why this child was fatherless was because his father was in prison. You see, this kid's dad was one of the 12 men that was responsible in killing Jean's father. And he still chose to sponsor this orphan just because this kid didn't have a father. And as you can, like, again, with the road to, to, to forgiveness, it was really tough for Jean because he didn't want to sponsor anybody except for his own people at first. But he did end up sponsoring this, this child and then later on would found uh, his own organization that would help children in Rwanda, uh, helping orphans uh, that was to help them escape poverty. And most of the children that the, his organization that's sponsoring are Hutu. Had he not forgiven those and lived with hatred towards these people, there would still be several children in need. Now recognize this is an extreme example of forgiveness. But I believe it is important to recognize the impact that our forgiveness on our enemies can have on our own lives. Again, you and I must come to terms the hatred that we have towards people will always be outmatched by God's love for that same person. By harboring hatred towards other, it only adds to our trauma that we face. There's a great practical application that I would suggest uh, to you. Uh, you see, when, whenever we look at our enemies, we, we can easily dehumanize them. Reason being, like, maybe someone was really mean to you. You may call them a jerk or maybe something worse. Um, 
instead of a person that has a story that may have made them behave that certain way. We dehumanize people often. Tim Mackey says, the first step towards enemy love is recognizing the common humanity, the common brokenness that we all share. He then suggests a practice to think of someone in your life that has inflicted pain to you. Uh, it could be minor or maybe something huge. Write down maybe a time where you had displayed that same attribute, maybe like being selfish or being short. This will foster this sense of empathy in you and which will hopefully will help your interactions with this person in the future. And it'll help in your pathway to forgiveness. It's important to take a step back and humble ourselves. Kind of like what Sam spoke last week about Obadiah. There is pride in our hatred. It's like when Jonah says again, it's right for me to be angry, God. We attempt to justify our hatred because of something that happened to us. And our hatred and unforgiveness can make us completely miss what God has for us. It's important to humble ourselves. It could be possible that God is placing these people in your life to display that same grace that the Lord has shown you. What an incredible way to experience God's grace again by showing that same grace towards someone else. And maybe you would say, I don't really have many enemies. I would suggest to you to take joy in those mundane day-to-day interactions then. This too is a chance for you to show our neighbors the love of God. And I would argue that this may even be more important than the big events that you may face due to the frequency. Take joy in these small conversations. God could be using these small conversations in your daily life to impact that person in a huge way. I want to end our time today with uh, the words of Jesus from Matthew 43 uh, through 44. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you just for your love and your patience towards us, God. God, we recognize that you are gracious, God, and you are merciful, and you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Father, I pray that everybody in this room would just follow that that, uh, guidance, God, to be just like you in that. Father, I also pray for those who have had trauma in their past that they are still recovering from, God. God, we recognize that you are a healer, and I pray that you would just bring healing over them, God. And also, any kind of strained relationship, Father, I just pray that you would bless those relationships, God, that you would mend those broken relationships, God. Be Be with us today, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.